getting in the way of what's right or wrong. And when not the cat, sorry, just like people say to the cops, they hear it too. All right. Thank you all for your patience this morning. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll recap where we, where we left off last week, try to get everyone up to speed if you missed it, and then we have much more to discuss this morning. So let's pray. Jesus, we are um, we're here because of you. We're here because you have purchased us, bought us, and redeemed us to be your own. Um, we're here because we, we love you, and we want to follow you with all of our lives. And so we ask that you would use this morning to bring us into a fuller maturity, um, a fuller assurance of your will, um, that you would be glorified, um, and that your church would be edified. Um, please work this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, recapping where we were last week. So, if you missed it, um, this is our second week on the topic of homosexuality. And um, last week, we spent the bulk of our time really looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality. Um, we started by defining, um, defining our terms. So, when we say homosexuality, what, we, what do we mean? I gave the definition of any desire, inclination, and activity that is homosexual meaning that it's between two or more members of the same sex. Um, and really highlighted that it's a desire, inclination, or an activity. So all three of those are included in the definition when we say homosexuality. So when we say then that someone is practicing homosexuality um, or is engaged in homosexuality, it could be all three of those things, or it could be one of the, one of the three. Um, it's, we're not trying to discriminate between the three, that they're all included. From there, we moved on to um, not actually looking at what the Bible says about homosexuality first, but instead looking at what does it say about sexuality first, because um, we need to have a, a good grounding of that. And I was arguing that if you just look at what the Bible says about hom- uh, sexuality, it already rules out homosexuality from the get-go. You don't even have to look at those specific commands to come to a conclusion of this is, this is wrong, this is sin. Uh, so we looked at Genesis 1 and looked at um, like the created order, like how did God created things to be? Now, I didn't use this analogy last week, but I'll, I'll use it this week. Um, like, you know the, the watch um, it found in the woods analogy that we use often for like creation? Like if you found a watch in the woods, you'd assume that it has a creator. I'm going to do a little twist on that analogy. In the same way, like if you found a, a watch in the woods, you wouldn't go use that to make bacon. Or you wouldn't use that watch to make a phone call, unless maybe it was like an Apple watch. So you, you can only use the watch for the, the intended use of what it was created for. So in a similar way, I think we can look back at creation and say, what was our genderedness created for? What was marriage instituted for? Anything outside of that is, is, is wrong because it doesn't fit within its created design. You can manipulate it and use it in incorrect ways. That doesn't mean it should be used in that way, because you, ha- you have to look at creation. We then looked at a couple of different uh, passages, um, one being Matthew 19 and Mark 10, where Jesus comments on divorce. Um, and there's a couple things we gathered from that. One, he talks about marriage as if it's between a man and a woman. And also, he goes back and looks at Genesis to, to provide grounding for his arguments. And so because Jesus did that, that's why I feel comfortable looking back at Genesis and saying, this is where we get our understanding and definition of what it means to be a man and a woman. What does it mean to, be, to, to engage in marriage? Because um, that's, that's where Jesus went. And so we, we, we are within our rights to look back at Genesis and use that as a prescriptive passage on what does it mean to, uh, what, what is sexuality? And, and we also looked at Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 5 and, and what it says about marriage being a reflection between Christ and the church. 
Um, and again, it assumes a man and a woman. And it goes back to Genesis again, um, and it uses that as, Paul uses that as his grounds for, for the connection between marriage and Christ in the church. Um, and um, homosexuality, homosexual marriage doesn't fit within the definition that's provided there. We then went to, to the specific commands on homosexuality in the Bible. Um, starting with the Old Testament, there's really two. One is Leviticus 18.22. The other is Leviticus 20.13. And in both of those, uh, using pretty strong language, the Bible condemns the homosexual activity, calling it an abomination. And then if you go to the New Testament, um, the, the message is the same. I actually started not with, a, with another direct command, but actually in Acts 15, uh, which is the, the council where um, they met to, to think, talk about circumcision. How much of the law do we need to apply to Gentiles? Like, Do they need to, to become Jews in order to become Christians? And the, the resounding conclusion of that, of that council was, no, they don't need to become Jews. They don't need to be circumcised. But there were certain things that they encouraged them to uphold from the Mosaic Law, one of them being the sexual codes, abstain from sexual immorality. And I argued that because they had the Mosaic Law in mind when they said that, uh, we should take and look at what does the, the Old Testament say about sexuality, and that still applies to us today. Um, so you, would, you don't even have to continue on in, in the New Testament to see what does it say explicitly about um, sexual immorality. You can just look back at the Old Testament, and it, it still applies to us in that way. Uh, and then we also looked at two passages that explicitly um, mention um, homosexual activity, one of them being 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, the other one being 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Um, both of those use or, or have the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Um, and 1 Corinthians, it goes as far as saying they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, in 1 Timothy, it doesn't say that, but it still includes that it's contrary to nat nature and it, it's wrong. And... Um, I wanted to highlight in those that it's included in a, a clumped category of sin. So it's not explicitly, you know, separated as if this is this is extra evil thing that you need to be aware of. It's included with all of the other evil sins that we practice and we struggle with every day. And so because of that, it's like every sin worthy of condemnation and like every sin redeemable by the cross of Christ. Um, it can, we can be rescued from it and we can be cleansed of it. And then we had two, two kind of questions I wanted to answer before we started looking at some of the objections to the biblical view and questions that we would face as we talk with people. And one of those is, is the desire sin? Um, so I commented that the, the passage we looked at, I think you can take that and fuel my definition in terms of the activity. What about the desire and the inclination? Is that sin? Do we need to call it sin? Um, and my answer was, yes, we do. Um, because sin always comes from a disordered desire. It wouldn't make sense to say, well, yeah, you should do the activity, but if you want to, like, it's okay. Like, the desire is fine, but the activity is not. It doesn't make sense. Um, Jesus makes, and, and also if you look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes explicit connections between the internal realities and the external realities. Anger is equated with murder. Lust is equated with adultery. And so you at least come away with that realizing that we're condemned just as much for our inward realities, our inward desires, as we are for the external outworkings of those desires. But as Christians, we're not condemned by that. And so we don't need to hold that over the head of people who struggle with homosexual desire. They don't need to be feeling an extra measure of guilt and shame because of those desires, because just like every other sinful desire, that's been covered by the cross. 
And so now we wrestle against those desires, but those desires no longer define us, and they no longer constitute our judgment because of Jesus. Um, and so, um, yeah. So and, and I think I summarized that by saying, like, people struggling with same-sex attraction don't need to be told that their guilt doesn't exist. They don't need to be told that the desire's fine, just, just let it go. What they need to be told is that that guilt was canceled and paid for by Christ. Um, and now they can wrestle with that. Yeah. Yeah, briefly. Um, so the, the, the thesis is established by uh, a verse like Colossians 3 5, which uh, uh, establishes that we can have evil desires. Therefore, mm. the Bible um, makes the claim that desires can be evil. Mm. Therefore, they are. Our desires, therefore, can be sinful. Mm -hmm. So what are sinful desires? Those desires that tend toward sinful behavior. Yeah. And so we're to flee from them. We're to be dead to them. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that also highlights the danger, then, of acting like those desires are not sinful. And we're, we're not saying that they're sinful because we want to add guilt. We're not saying that it's sinful because we're trying to add burdens to people. We're saying that it's sinful because we want to encourage people to flee from those things. And if they don't, it's just as if someone was struggling with um, intense anger. I think, Rita, you mentioned that example. And we just said, well, actually, it's not a big deal. Like, as long as you don't hit anybody and you don't curse at them, just let that anger fester in your heart. No good pastor and no good Christian friend would ever say that to someone. So in the same way, we shouldn't encourage them to, to allow those desires to remain because it's, it's deadly to them. Um, it's deadly to our souls. And la the, the last question that we, we looked at overarching is the looking at the term gay Christian. Is that something that we can use? Is that something we should use? Is that something that if someone were to use it, it's just a matter of opinion, let it go? My conclusion there is that it's not a term that we should use or encourage others to use. In fact, I would argue that we should encourage them not to use it because um, if we're going with the definition of homosexuality as the desire, the inclination, and behavior towards this activity, uh, if we're going with that as sin, which I think I've provided enough evidence that we, we ought to, and that's a right conclusion, then there's no way to use that term without identifying ourselves with sin. There's just no way around it. Even if you don't intend to, so if you said, well, I'm a gay Christian, but you don't mean that in terms of identity, um, it still is identifying it with yourself because it's not just about your intentions, it's also about what do the word, what meanings do the words contain and how, how will somebody else interpret them and receive them. And we don't do that with any other sin. We wouldn't do that with anger. We wouldn't do that with lust. We wouldn't do that with pride. We don't. And I think I will hold off on some other things there because I think as we look at some of the objections, we'll see some of the, some of the danger of that. But um, it would be good to encourage people not to use that term, not to identify themselves with sin, but instead just to say that they are a Christian. Um, it's not to minimize the struggle, um, but they don't need to include that term for us to be aware of the fact that they have that struggle and for somebody to walk through that with them. So a couple statements I didn't make last week, but I want to make this week um, on that topic. I think just clarifying, like, <laughs> when you're wrestling with this term of, of can you be a gay Christian? Can you be gay and be a Christian? I think there's lots of questions to answer. So I just want to kind of a, a yes-no response to questions. So can someone who struggles with same-sex attraction become a Christian? Yes, absolutely. Can someone who continues to struggle with same-sex attraction remain a Christian? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Can someone who is engaged in homosexual activity become a Christian? No. Yes. Well, yes. Yes, they, they can. can. They, yeah, if they repent, they can. 
Can someone who has engaged in homosexual activity after professing faith remain a Christian? And again, yes, if they repent. Um, can someone who, is un- who unashamedly engages in homosexual activity remain a Christian? We can't affirm that they are. I'm not going to go as far as saying no, just because I don't, I don't know in our heart, but we, we can't affirm that they are because they're actively engaging in it and they're unrepentant. So I'll, I'll probably come back to some of these statements later, but the, the main thing I want to capture there is that um, we're encouraging people to forsake the identity and to cling to Christ. It doesn't mean they're not going to struggle with it, and it doesn't mean that we're expecting perfection. Again, we don't do that with any other sin. They're still going to be wrestling, and there's still space for them to fall and repent. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that it doesn't require perfection of us. So when we call people to repent of homosexuality, we're not expecting that they are never going to fall and struggle. We're expecting that they, just like the rest of us, will, but that they're going to live a life of continual repentance before the Lord when that happens, that they're going to continually affirm and proclaim that Christ is Lord, including over my sexuality, and that this is sin. I think that it's, we, we, we're looking at some of the objections, um, accusations that are thrown against Christians uh, often assume that we expect perfection of people who struggle with same-sex attraction, and we don't. And that's, a, that's a faulty assumption. So that's kind of the recap. We started looking at some of the objections, but I'm going to actually go back through some of them anyways today. Um, just looking at, like, what does the Bible say about sexuality, homosexuality, what, do we, believe, what we believe and why we believe it. Any questions or initial thoughts before we jump into some of the objections and things to rustle through? Great. If any other questions or thoughts come up, please feel free to to mention those. So I have five main categories of objections, I think. Yeah five main categories. And the way that I organized my thoughts around them was first, so what's the argument against Christianity? So argument itself. And then what are the underlying assumptions behind that argument? I think we really need to understand what those are and address the underlying assumptions rather than the argument itself most of the time. Because it's the underlying assumptions where we disagree. If we just talk about the the higher level stuff, it becomes more of a matter of opinion. Whereas the underlying assumptions, we're basing that off of some sort of truth. And they are as well. Uh, and then thinking about the Christian response. So the first objection is, it's not fair. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. That, that one has a lot of different flavors. It could be, you know, it's not fair because um, now I don't get to engage in, in sexual activity because I struggle with same-sex attraction. How could you withhold that from me? It could be, it's not fair because God made me this way, so like, why would God make me this way? Um, it's not fair because God makes everything good, so like, he made me this way, it must be good, right? Um, lots of flavors of the, the it's not fair. And it's a very emotional argument. Uh, more than likely, you're going to hear this from someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, but even from people who don't, um, they're going to say, well, it's like, how could you hold somebody to, to that level of standard? Um, so the argument goes, you know, to expect homosexuals to abstain from homosexual behavior is unjust and hateful because it drives them to frustration and despair and denies them the right to be fully human. I don't know if you hear some of the underlying assumptions there, but some of them are including that phys- physical intimacy is essential to human fulfillment. We have to do that to be fully human. Um, if we don't, and if we withhold that from people, then we're, we're making them almost subhuman and, and withholding from them the pinnacle of human experience. 
It's also assuming that physical intimacy is the highest form of love. And so if we deny that, then we're denying them access to love. Yeah? In my view, that whole argument is is the 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 couch and the premise of God made me this way. That that premise is incorrect. Mm. It's a false premise because the Bible states, states clearly male and female who made them mm. and then goes on to say for this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined mm. to his wife male and female. that is how God made us yeah. and it isn't an issue of desire or inclination you know we, we may have that but there's, there's a separate agent at, at mm. work that isn't God if we, if we are to hold the Bible as true absolutely um, and um, I, I I hope that I don't sound like a broken record, but we don't do that with any other sin. We wouldn't say, you know, God made me hateful and angry. God made me prideful. God made me lustful. We don't. We acknowledge that because of the fall, we are all born with inclinations towards sin. One of those inclinations is same-sex attraction, but it's the same as if we're, we're inclined to any other sin. It's a broken part of who we are. All of us are born, in a sense, not fully human, not fully in... Like we're not fully ex- exercising the image of God because we have inclination towards, towards sin. And so it's, it's no different for the person who struggles with same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. God didn't make them that way. Um, the fall did. Can I? Um, yeah. I love that you're, you know, like that term, it's not fair, and then you're talking about like the assumptions that mm. are like embedded in that. Yeah. Like it's a really great... Hmm. to realize like a, a blanket statement like that has assumptions underneath of it. And you were saying, um, and I, I'm sorry, my pen wasn't fast. Oh, it's good. You were saying sexual, one of the assumptions is sexual Like they are meshed, yeah. So the first one is the you know, physical intimacy is essential to human fulfillment. Okay. And then the second one is physical intimacy is the highest form of love. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so actually, I'll, just a little side note on that, you know, the underlying assumptions. One, th- one of the things I think it's helpful to remember when you're debating or discussing with someone is that their conclusions and their arguments make perfect sense based off of the assumptions that they have. So they're not crazy people. They have these underlying assumptions and they're following the conclusions of those assumptions and coming up with an argument. And so that's why I think we need to strive to not argue with the argument but with the assumptions because we're not going to change the argument unless we change the assumptions. But rather than assumptions, because assumptions has a, um, a subjective aspect. Sure. Premise. Premise is good, yeah. Argument that we can actually attack and say, question and interrogate and say, is mm. this so? An assumption, it's, well, that's your opinion. Mm. Premise is very different. That's how we are building arguments are, are based on premises. That's good. It's a little more solid than assumptions. Yeah. Is, is it your opinion that many times those assumptions or premises are based on emotional factors rather than um, facts? No, like, mm-hmm. is it, you think like a person would say, it, it isn't fair that, um, that I can't have this, ex- I have sex with a man. It isn't fair. Well, um, are you basing that on fact or are you basing that on emotion? And clearly it probably is mm-hmm. emotion 
because factually hmm. you're you're blasting it. Do you know what I mean by yeah. I just a thought that occurred. To sure, me. I think it's not not a bad thought, and I think often it will be driven by emotion. Mm-hmm. I think depending upon the person. It's just one you got to be careful of, because even if it's based off of fact, it's based off an alternative fact. It's not based off the Bible. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it doesn't matter if they're basing it off emotion or fact, because they need the Bible to replace either one of those. But there may be times where it's helpful for, to point out and acknowledge that, hey, there's really no authority that you're basing this off of other than yourself. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that sense, they would say it's a fact, because it's an internal fact. It's a personal fact. Um, and, and so again, the modern-day psychology that says that you know, even if a child uh, re- misremembers his uh, upbringing mm. and says, my parents were terrible to me, his perception is where you start, even if it's not the truth. Right. And that's what psychology says these days. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, good. Good, Kenny. Oh, I was just going to comment that um, I think rather than even fact because an alternative fact, and, and maybe I'm thinking of it incorrectly, but my understanding is a fact is something that is true. Mm-hmm. And so I would be inclined to use the word truth, and people struggle because they don't know the truth. Um, and they believe a lie. Mm. And so what to them is a fact is really a lie. Yeah. Um, of course, I know we, can, we can't always say to them, well, you're believing lies, mm. because that can evoke an emotional response, Absolutely. Right? you know, and all of that, so mm-hmm. you don't want to get into a, a back and forth like that, but, um, um, uh, and, and I could be wrong, I just think it's helpful, uh, it's helpful for me, Sure. if I'm in a conversation like that with someone, and I, and I have been, um, to remember that there absolutely is, I'm, I'm well founded on the truth, on the truth, yeah, and trying to, um, just trying to, with, with God's help and the Holy Spirit, directed toward that, rather than get, get into arguments about, um, yeah, about about individual. I don't know. I struggle with the, the, the fact thing. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And it's challenging because everyone has different, like, we're now in a world where there's lots of different definitions. And so that, that does underscore the importance of, like, when you're talking with someone, making sure you understand when they use terms, what do they mean by them? And hopefully, when you're using terms, what do they mean by them? So maybe, yeah, avoiding the, that fact, avoiding fact and sticking to truth would be, would be better, just if it helps you. Yeah. But even in, with the perversion of language, we the, the person with whom we are engaging may say, well, that's your truth. Yeah. And so they've right. subjectivized, they've, they've diluted our language to the point where chaos is introduced mm-hmm. so that people cannot actually build a coherent argument. Mm-hmm. So um, in fact, I think that hasn't been undermined as much as the word truth, <laughs> at least yeah. in our vernacular yet. Sure. <laughs> There's still time. Absolutely. Let's circle back. To, we'll circle back to that one at the end because I want to. I want to touch more on that. Um, so responses to this objection. There's there's a few different ones that we can we can look at. Um, one is that, that sexual holiness is required of all Christians. Um, Kevin DeYoung, I read one of his books on this topic, and, and he's quoted, he quotes, and he says, Resisting sexual desire is a part of discipleship for every Christian. 
no matter our marital status and no matter the kinds of attraction we experience. And so it's, I think, a false dichotomy to assume that, well, we're just expecting, you know, it's not fair to, to people who struggle with same-sex attraction because the standards for them are so much higher than it is for those who, sh- who don't have that. It's not true. We're, we're all, in one sense or another, meant to subject our sexual desires to Christ. Um, and it, you, they could potentially argue that, well, it's more difficult because they don't have a way to express it. Sure. But we're still all, we're all called to that. It is a, a form of death for all of us to to, to find new life. So they're not unique in that experience. Um, also, nowhere in the Bible is physical intimacy treated as essential to humanity. The simplest and best example of that is Christ. Uh, he did not have sex while he was here on earth, and yet we hold him up as the ultimate example of what it means to be human. He is the one that we strive to be more like, and it doesn't make sense for us to say, well, you need to be more like Christ, but he didn't have sex, but you should if you want to be fully human. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Um, also, and I think potentially even, even well, not more powerful, just as powerful is, is recognizing or addressing the definition of love. Um, I don't feel like you have to fully prove to them that love is not the highest human experience because that's a little bit more difficult to wrestle with. But even if they want to go with that premise, then fine. What does the Bible say about love? Um, the Bible's definition of love and what it holds up as the highest form of love is not you know, sexual relations. Um, it's, it's God's love for us, and particularly his love for us expressed on the cross. You know, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins um, from First John. And so then also physical intimacy in marriage is not you know, meant to be held up as the, the standard of love. It's meant to be a reflection of the love that Christ had for the church as expressed in the cross and through his resurrection. And so when we, we tell people who struggle with same-sex attraction that they cannot act upon those desires, we're not withholding from them the highest form of love. That's offered to them in Christ, and they are welcome to partake in it just as much as everyone else is. Um, we, can, we can help dispel some of the confusion with that because we have used love as a euphemism hmm. for an act when it, that isn't. Hmm. You know, it, it is, is an expression within a specified relationship, but be, for the for the sake of discretion, we have, you know, contextualized that mm. as a euphemism in our language. But it's not it's not symbolic. It is not that de- definition. Right. Um, something that I've said to to people when in conversation about this mm. is that that sex is not love. So it mm. said was said to me, how can you deny? love, you know, the ability for them to love one another. Mm. And I said, no one is denying them ability, the ability to love one another. Mm. Sex is not love, it's an expression, mm. sometimes of love. Sometimes sex is not an expression of love. Express. We can't mm. define it that way. Yeah. But no one is saying that people can't love each other. Mm. It's just that it's, it's a different kind of, it's friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, friends can love each other. They don't have to have sex, they can love each other mm-hmm. um, well. You know, no, so no one is denying them that. And I think yeah. what it comes down to is that people don't want to be denied the sexual expression in the relationship. It's true. I mean, I, I, it was, I realize that's not a full, maybe a full picture, but yeah. it's one that's, of five. That's, that's part of it, for sure. Um, yeah, that's part of it, for sure. Next objection. Um, which we did touch on a little bit last week, is the it's not sustainable argument. Um, the argument that 
um, it's not realistic. It's not, not only is it not fair, but like, how could you expect them to, to live this way? Uh, and this connects with some of the, the statements that I made earlier of like, we're, we're not expecting perfection, um, but this argument seems to, to assume that we are. So I would, I would phrase the argument this way. Um, if homosexual sex and marriage is not acceptable, then those who struggle with same-sex attraction have no way to satisfy the sexual desire, or their sexual desire, excuse me, and will have no companionship or love. This requires those who struggle with same-sex attraction to live isolated lives that are completely, insexu- that are completely sexually abstinent. Even heterosexual people cannot live under this standard, so how could God expect this of homosexuals? A little bit of a compelling argument. At least, again, this is another emotional aspect of, like, well, how could you expect them to be perfect? Like, you're not even perfect. You don't even fully keep the law. How could you stack these burdens on people who struggle with same-sex attraction and, and expect them to, to upkeep that? Underlying assumptions behind this one. First one is, well, actually, the first one is that we're expecting perfection, which I think is a, a total lie. Another one is that the homosexual mar- if, if homosexual marriage is not an option, then the alternative for people who struggle with same-sex attraction is isolation, solitude, and loneliness. That, that they're meant to be on their own, they're never going to have any companionship. Um, yeah, they're going to be isolated. But if they're in the Christian community, ostensibly, you know, they, they experience community in the Christian community. I mean, if they're they are fully Christian. Yeah. And so they're not being deprived. They can be in relationship with many people who even struggle with the same sin. Mm-hmm. And they can be mutually um, supportive. Yeah. We'll come back to that in just a second. Okay. But that, that, that's, that's exactly the response, I think, to, to that objection. Um, I think also the underlying assumption is that there's no grace for Christians who commit homosexual sin and only those for those that commit heterosexual sin. Um, so when I ask the question, um, you know, can someone who has engaged in homosexuality after professing faith still remain a Christian? I wasn't asking that. Like it, probably a little bit. It's an uncomfortable question for me to think about, and it might have been a little uncomfortable for you. And my point in asking that was not to, to say that it's okay or that we should tell people, hey, if you slip up, it's going to be fine. But that's not what we're, we're, we're trying to say. We're not trying to give any sort of license for sin. But I think it's, a, it's false to assume that as Christians, we are like we're holding people who struggle with same-sex attraction under a microscope, and as soon as they they slip up and fall, as soon as they commit that sin, you're done. You're out of here. We have no room for you. That's not how we treat anyone in the church, including same people who struggle with same-sex attraction. So uh, again, it's anecdotal. It's it's not incontrovertible uh, uh, proof, but anecdotal. We we see plenty of stories of people like Rosaria Butterfield. Hmm who in her case was a militant lesbian engaged in you know relationships and so forth, and uh, was a, a professor, a university professor at Syracuse, who led, you know, she was on the vanguard of mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, lo and behold, while researching some of her, materi- her material to combat Christianity, she engages a pastor and eventually becomes a Christian herself, mm. re-examines the biblical worldview and mm. renounces that and today is married and so forth. Um, yeah. And so it ultimately for her, it wasn't a, well, this is who I am. It's mm. what she thought she was, mm. 
but then realized no, there are other things mm -hmm. that factored in, lesser yeah. things that caused it, that elevate in terms of her priority set. And once she came under the authority of scripture, mm -hmm. all of those things began to fall into proper order for her. Mm -hmm. And so the that's not the, again, it's anecdotal. So I'm not going to say, well, Christopher Yuan will eventually get married to a woman or what have you. Right. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, though, is that things find their proper place. Mm -hmm. And we're, as Michael points out again and again and again, God's way isn't just right, it's good. Mm -hmm. It's ideal, it's best, and it's blessed. Yeah. So. It also takes time. I mean, I've been a believer for... 35 years hmm. and I still sin you know maybe hopefully not as much as I used to hmm. but it takes people time to work through their issues hmm. maybe oh 45 whatever <laughs> uh, yeah that's yeah. true oh, sorry I lost, I lost some years <laughs> anyway um, yeah it takes people time and we need that's part of the grace of God is hmm. we allow people time mm -hmm. um, to grow and to come to a fuller understanding of Christ and union with him through obedience. Hmm. Um, so we have to allow, every one of us needs that grace and hmm. the time to um, become sanctified. Absolutely. And I think there's 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 two aspects of, of what you were just talking about that I think is helpful. One of those is that can change. Um, it, you know, you can say it's unsustainable, but there are people who have who have had that inclination and have vehemently said that's the only inclination I have, and the Lord has changed that, and now they're married to someone of the opposite sex and they have children. Like it, it's possible, and I think to to say that 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 can't happen or that's unsustainable is to deny the power of the gospel and the, the power that Christ does have. He doesn't promise that he will cleanse us of those things in this life, but if he doesn't in this life, it will be in the next, and he can't. He can. He can do it. Um, so it's, it's not only to say that it's unsustainable also does not only deny the power that it can change but for those who it doesn't change so the desire is just there all the time um, and so what, what's expected of them is chastity um, to say that that's unsustainable is to deny that, that Christ's power is enough not only to cleanse them of their sin but to keep them from their sin that his grace that he provides every day is not enough and that his way isn't better that it's better for them to give in to their desires than it is to remain chaste which is a lie, and which is which is false, and to say that well, then they need to be to be isolated. So Rita already identified. We're not asking of them isolation. They're a part of the body. They're a part of the church. Um, Jesus in Mark ten, um, he says, "There's no one who he doesn't give up mother and brother and father and sister in this life who will not be repaid a hundredfold." Uh, I think part of that is is the church. Like you're, you're forsaking your your physical family. Um, and joining the church, and what you're offered is now a new family, the body of Christ. And so the, um, it's just a, another false dichotomy to say that when we, we tell people that they can't get married to someone of the same sex, we're telling them that they should live alone for the rest of their life. No, it's an invitation to abstain from that and to engage with the body in the church and to find love and community there. Yeah. And I think we all, all fail in this regard that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are given resurrection power. The mm. same power that raised Jesus from the dead Absolutely. is in us. Mm. And when we need help and we ask for it mm. and wait for it, it comes. Yeah. 
And so there would be no exception for people with a homosexual tendency. There would be no exception there. It's the same. Yeah. So I think that this is it's a difficult argument. It's an emotional argument. And yet it's one that seems to be a pattern for those in the church, and particularly pastors who are acquiescing to the, the demands for people to, to be affirming, um, is to, to use that um, it's not sustainable argument. So I gave the example last week of Pastor Anley Stanley, pastor of a mega church um, under fire in the last month or so because of the conference that he put on that uh, he claimed was not same-sex affirming. It was more just giving people resources for how to, to, to love and care for their children, but in fact was affirming. And actually in his sermon that he, he gave defending it, he both says that he, he holds to the, the biblical sexual ethic and yet at the same time says, but for those who struggle with, with homosexual desires, um, chastity is not sustainable and they choose to get married even though they know it's wrong. And we need to, res- we, we, it's their decision. We need to let them make their decision. Our decision is how we're going to respond to them. Um, so in the same breath, while he affirms um, what the Bible says about sexuality, he still gives room for people to break that and then puts it on us to, to respond to their, their breaking that law as if it's okay. I mean, he's giving them. He's giving them license to sin. He's not the only pastor to do that. He's just one of the more famous ones to he do goes that. Farther, he calls them brave. He does call them brave. Different sermon, but yeah, he does. He he goes as far in another sermon. He said that they have more faith than I do because they stay in the church um, after all that they they faced. And it's not to deny that like, it's hard. It's is it hard to be uh, to struggle with same sex attraction to be a Christian? Is it Absolutely. Hard to be a Christian? Is it hard to yeah? Because that's the next question. Is it hard to be a Christian? Yes, yes. it is. Because it is death. It's death to our flesh. It's death to our sinful desires. Everyone will have to die. It is painful. Um, like we are, we are, <laughs> we're partaking in Christ's death on the cross, and we're suffering like Him, because He suffered and He was persecuted and He was ridiculed. And so, to to deny ourselves and take up our cross is the same call for every Christian. It's hard, and so we don't have to um, elevate. The, the person with same-sex attraction and their experience in order to, to recognize the difficulty. We just have to include them in the same category as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And isn't it, I'm not sure, I'm not as smart as Dan about this, but isn't it the book of Ezekiel that says that if we see someone in sin and do not let them know that the blood is on our head? So I think it's that, isn't it, Dan? It's Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel 3, but that, that has to do with yeah, failing to warn if, if, I know, if the but it's the same thing. If you see, coming, you if you see somebody heading for death yeah. and you don't snatch them back, hmm. that's against the word of the Lord. I think but it's, it's dangerous. I, I was mixing my thoughts. I know Ezekiel does say that if you see some danger coming and you don't say something, hmm. then the blood is on your head. Uh, yeah, I think it's dangerous not to warn people and maybe even more so dangerous is to, to afford Affirm, affirm them in their sins. So we looked at Romans last week, which is another passage in, in the New Testament that addresses homosexuality, um, but it also is addressing the fallen state of humanity as a whole. And, and Paul concludes that by saying, you know, they not only partake in these things, but they affirm those who do so. And so I think for us as Christians, the danger is probably not that we're going to partake in those things, but more so that we're going to affirm those who do so, because that's what the world demands of us. Uh, and we, we can't give in to that, because it's not only dangerous to their souls, it's also dangerous for our own. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who, who said, coming back to your thought about the humanity of the war, 
hard to be a Christian. He said, uh, the, the problem is not that people have tried Christianity and found it wanting, but rather they found it difficult and left it untried. Mm-hmm. And so we, many of the people who lay indictments before biblical Christianity uh, claim to have walked in it, but really have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a, I think, a similar discussion from, I think it's C.S. Lewis, and he's talking about like we seem to th- we think that people who have given into sin understand how how hard it is. Um, like we you know think that they they really understand how how difficult it is to to have that sin. So that's false. The person who knows and understands the weight of sin most is Christ, and it's the one who is abstained from sin, and and he's the only one who is t- who is withheld and will withstand every sin to the point of death, um, and it has drank the, the bitter cup on our behalf. And so, uh, we we can't give in to um, this belief that well, you just don't know how hard it is, and it's just it's just you know it's 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 too hard. Like, no, like, it's it's you need to continue continue on. Um, and it will be worth it. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. And, and the reward and the promise lies for those who um, endure to the end, who, who continue on until the end. Amen. It's really helpful to um, glean from the people who are actually dealing, living with the issue, like Rosaria and mm-hmm. Christopher Yuan, Sam Albury. Um, and I like Christopher Yuan's reframing of the issue. Um, you know, if we can use those things when we're in conversation with other people about these these Hmm. topics, he says his goal is not to become heterosexual, right? But but it's holy, his goal is holy sexuality, Hmm. um, not heterosexuality. Hmm. And that's... um, Yeah, we all share that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's common, you know, different applications, but, but common... Um, and I, th- I, th- I don't know, I think that's really helpful, more, more so I think when we're in conversation with Christians who struggle with it than mm. non-believers. Because non-believers won't put things in terms of holy, what? I just think that's an interesting way to put it. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh-huh. Mm. Okay. Because heterosexuality is part of holy sexuality. Mm. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. it's like... To say I want to be holy in my sexuality means moving towards heterosexuality. Hmm. Like, yes. Like, so, we were talking a moment ago about, like, denying them love. We're also not denying them physical intimacy. Hmm. Like, it's true. So to, so to say to the homosexual hmm. person, hey, you're, you're denying me love and you're denying me sex. Like, no, we're not denying either of those things. We're calling you away from what God says mm. is deviant and sinful and depraved toward what God calls good, beautiful, mm. best. Nobody is saying you can't be married or can't be physically intimate. Mm. What we're saying is, is this is God's way and this is what God deems holy, righteous, mm. good. That's available to them, hmm. just as it's available to everybody else, right? Just right. like we're saying to the man who struggles with wanting to be with multiple women, <laughs> right? Yeah. We're mm-hmm. saying, uh, no, you get one and, and choose and be married and, you know. So, but, but to parse out, 
parse out to say, like, I'm not trying to be heterosexual. I'm trying to be homosexual. It plays well on a page, perhaps, but I'm not sure I agree with the premise of heterosexuality in the context of one man and one woman in marriage is what is holy sexuality. So you just be really careful about some of these things. And this is the same guy who described himself identifies himself as a gay Christian, correct? Does he still? Okay. I was thinking of somebody different, sorry. Oh, but it's, different guy. Yeah, okay. different guy, but Christian, yeah. So yeah. We, just have to, like, we just have to be careful about some of the language that we I think, um, use. Yeah, I, I see your point. Well taken. I think that uh, for him, he um, is trying to, because he's been in the heat of it, you know? Sure. In the heat of the battle. And so there are, there are all sorts of arguments that um, well, how can you expect me to change to become heterosexual? But but pause. No, well, if I just finish. Yeah, sure. So he, I think he's I think he's trying to um, address those specific arguments. You know, hey, the point get your get the point off of becoming heterosexual and holy, holy sexuality being a different way of saying biblical sexuality. But 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 I. But I agree with your, your point, you know. I'll go back to what we said last week. Yeah. Take any argument for homosexuality and apply it to another sin and see if it works. Right. I'm angry. My goal isn't to become kind or patient. Like, yeah. there, there's no neutral, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, to, to, to oppose anger means simultaneously to pursue kindness, patience, right? So... To, to oppose this sin is to simultaneously to pursue the virtue, right? Mm -hmm. We're not looking for, like, some kind of neutral. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that's really good. So, mm -hmm. so we have to be careful about, like, now I agree that, like, yeah, he, he, you may continue to have the struggle with the sin, the desire, etc., and you've got to get to re resist, you have to reject that, you have to put that down, etc., but I think in this conversation, many times we're so um, we're so eager to say to talk about the difficulty of this that we do downplay the the power of the gospel and the power of Christ to bring transformation, and we ought to be like if if okay. So as I struggle with anger, I'm not merely praying God help me stop being angry. I'm simultaneously mm. praying, God, help me to be patient, help me to be kind. In the same way, if I struggle with or homosexual desire, I'm not simply praying, help me, God, to resist this. I'm praying, God, change me. Give me what is good, right? Give me what matches your will, right? So I just have to be really careful that we don't say, like, <laughs> it's just ironic to me that we want to put... We want to say, like, we don't want to put homosexuality in a, in a special category, and yet oftentimes we s keep slipping back into putting it into a special mm -hmm. category by mistake. So I'm going to agree with, with all three of you, uh, including Christopher, because it's an acquaintance, but the, the Philippians 3, I want to know him, I want to know Christ, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that I may attain his resurrection. And so the, 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 the goal, our ultimate goal is Christ. 
not not uh, uh, sexual correction or you know proper sexual expression. That all things find their place in Christ. Because Paul, we don't see Paul speaking of his own sexual inclinations at all. Not that that's relevant in his discourses, but because he's calling all of us to sexual purity and holiness in, in Christ. And but the point being that Paul was not married, right? He was, he was a committed single person wishing that others would be as he is, but that's his preference. Uh, where would we be if we were all thus? We wouldn't be here. So, right. But the, the, the point being, though, that our, the one that we strive after is not our spouse. It is Christ. And that God, through his providence, has given uh, some to be a spouse and others to remain faithful as single, you know. And so when we overemphasize the, the sexuality, the sexual aspects of it, we actually take away from the efficacy of, of Christ, which I think is what I'm hearing you say as well. Did you have another objection, Because I wanted to hear your whole outline. I don't want it like to get where we don't get through what we think, because I was really curious what you else you had to say. Sure. Let me say one quick comment on that, and then we'll I'll, I'll, we'll keep going. I think that it's helpful to remember again our overarching definition of homosexuality as the desire, the inclination, and the activity. And also, I think when we some of these those arguments and those difficulties, I think, come from an overemphasis of the word orientation and this belief that an orientation is this unchangeable who we are, and this is just h- how we are. Um, and make sure that we don't confuse. Um, like almost being being having same sex attraction or having no same sex attraction as you know engaging in that and and being married. There's the separation between the two. Um, I think it's a difficult topic, um, but we're not just calling we're, we're, if <laughs> we're not calling people to an orientation per se. We're calling them to to right desires and attitudes. And if we think of it, well, this is an orientation and that can't change. No, it's, there's the power of the gospel um, that can. And again, because we, we have perverted our language, we use that, as you say, to be a fixed thing. Sure. When if you're using a compass, you're trying to go find the, the right place, you're orienting yourself. Mm. And so just because you find yourself oriented in sin, you're trying to orient yourself toward holiness. In Christ, and sure. so we're always on the move. It's always dynamic. There's more to be said. We're going to keep going. Um, I'm going to be a little more quick through these um, objections. So, uh, as you hold comments, questions towards the end, so we can try to get through these last three. Uh, first of the three is, um, you know, there's the approach of reinterpreting the Bible. I think the Bible is pretty clear on what it says. So if you want to avoid what the Bible says about homosexuality, you're really your only other option is to either reinterpret it or retranslate it, which is what people will do. So the argument goes like this. Um, the commands of Scripture were given within a specific culture and context, and how we understand them depends heavily on that culture and context. Christianity has always renegotiated its interpretation of Scripture in light of the culture. For example, we don't require Christians to not eat shellfish condemn Christian men with long hair, or require that Christians sell all of their possessions and give their money to the poor. Because of this, the prohibitions against homosexuality no longer apply today. How is homosexuality any different from other commands in Scripture that we don't take literally? This is a, like, 
a pretty heavy argument, and it's, it's, this is maybe a more academic approach rather than an, an, an emotional um, approach. And to, to give it justice would take too long. So I'm going to mostly just address the, the underlying assumptions. Um, the first one is that Christians don't have a framework for discerning which commands of scripture apply directly or literally. That we just take pick and choose as we want, whatever fits our culture and what we like. Um, and so the second one is that we, we reinterpret the Bible based off of culture. We don't. We reinterpret the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, we reinterpret based off of the Bible. We, we understand the commands of the Old Testament in light of Christ and what the New Testament authors say about it. Um, and so I think it's a little tricky because it's easy to get pulled into the weeds with this one, and then now you're like, you, you thought you were talking about homosexuality, and all of a sudden you're talking about shellfish. And like, that's just not, not what you're planning on. And then now you're having to like argue, well, why can we eat shellfish, but we can't engage homosexuality? It's not worth it. I think the simple answer is um, the we take what the New Testament says. So if they really wanted to argue, well, you shouldn't eat shellfish, but the Bible and the New Testament, both Jesus and the, the uh, apostles understand his commandments as saying that all foods are clean. So we don't just say, well, you know, we, we want to eat shellfish. No, like the, the, we take what the Bible says about it. Similarly, in, in homosexuality, we already observed that um, the, the apostles saw the, the sexual codes of the Old Testament are still applying to us today. So it's not a pick and choose. Um, it's a, no one who, who seriously studies the Bible or understands church history, I think, can honestly say that, that the church has always just has no, no method and no, no um, approved way of understanding these things, that they just take it based off of culture. We don't. Um, every serious Bible scholar has thought through this carefully and considered it well. Another argument connected to this one is that, well, you know, okay, so fine, it says homosexuality is bad. Well, now you have to redefine the term homosexuality. And they'll say, well, you know, the authors of scripture didn't have a framework for loving monogamous homosexual relationships. And so um, it's only talking about exploitive activity and, you know, we should allow uh, monogamous marriage between men and between women. And I don't have any underlying assumptions because this entire argument is one big assumption. And there's really no grounds for that. I mean, if you look at, um, so none of the commands in the Bible against homosexuality provide any sort of nuance or qualification. There is actually, and if you look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, there's a Greek word that could be used for like man, boy, like exploitive activity. They could have used that. They didn't. Um, they, don't, they don't use that word. They use a word that includes two consensual people engaging in the activity. Um, the, the historical evidence also proves otherwise. Not only was homosexual activity present at this time, but it was evident that it was just as pervasive and divisive today. So in the book that I read by Kevin DeYoung, he quotes four different authors. One is Thomas Hubbard, who's a non-Christian classics professor. Second is Bernadette Bruton. Uh, she's a lesbian professor of Christian studies. Very interesting title. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's a professor of New Testament, scholar and an Anglican bishop. And then Lewis Crompton, um, he's a gay man and pioneer of queer studies. All four of these people, broad backgrounds, looking at the literature, the ancient literature, all come to the conclusion that this activity and these things that we see today were, just, were present in the Roman world there. And it's interesting that all four of them understand the biblical uh, commands as arguing against homosexual activity as a whole. So even there's two people in this list who would consider themselves homosexual. And even they, like, yeah, there's no way around this. Like, you look at the historical, historical context, you critically look at the literature, the Bible is saying what Christians say it says. So either you have to accept what the Bible says or reject it. 
Next argument um, is, well, God is a God of love. He just accepts me the way that I am. God is love. So how could he um, reject me as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction? Um, He must love homosexuals or he wouldn't be loving. Uh, God accepts all people just the way they are. Why can't you? How could God, who is loving, hate gay people and send them to hell? And there's like (laughs) a couple other arguments in there because you're dealing with the reality of sin you're dealing with the reality of God as a holy God. You're dealing, you're dealing with the definition of love. And you're dealing with the definition of like justice and judgment. But a couple of underlying assumptions. One is to accept someone means to affirm and condone their character and their behavior. That love equals acceptance or affirmation. And also that Christians claim that God's love for us is based off of who we are. I don't know if you caught that at all in the argument, but I think it's interesting because... The, the assumption is that you know, God loves people because they're heterosexual and he hates people because they're homosexual, which is not true. He hates sin and his love and he, and he, he, he loves everyone um, and he, he sent Jesus to die for everyone. His love for us is not based on who we are. He died for us while we were yet sinners and while we were weak at the right time. So it's not based off of who we are. And so he doesn't have special hatred or special love for people based off of their quote-unquote sexual orientation. I know I'm flying through this. I can absolutely share my notes if you wanted to have some of these, if you're not able to to write it down. Last one, which we've already touched on a little bit, is God made me this way. So I'm I'm gay because God created me this way. God doesn't make mistakes, so being gay must be good. I cannot believe that God would create homosexual people and then deny them the right to express those desires. Underlying assumptions, um, our sexual desires and inclinations cannot change. Orientation is fixed. Our, Our sexual desires and inclinations should not change. And to express this is oppressive. So this is the idea that what is is how it ought to be. Uh, and we as Christians know that what is is not how it ought to be because of the fall. So we don't look at the world and say, yeah, this is about what it should be, and we should try to just live more like it is. No, we say the world is not how it should be. And I don't think anyone in their right mind could read the news and say that it, it should be this way. It's not. That's why Jesus came to die. Um, so it's, what, what is, and, and I, I understand there's some more nuance there. They're not just saying, well, the world is the way it should be. They're saying as it is internally, that's the way it should be. And again, we would say, no, because of the fall, we all have a sinful nature. The way we are internally is not the way we ought to be, and it's not the way we will be in heaven. And, our, and I think that the next question that I want to ask, which again, we've touched on several times, but are we being hopeful and expectant of the power of God and the power of the gospel to change our nature and innate desires? Yes. I think you can ask that question of all of our sin. Like, are we expectant? And do we believe that God can not only change, like make us not be angry, but that he can give us only like have us hearts that only have righteous anger. Do we believe that God cannot just make us prideful and selfish and like prevent us from acting out in pride and selfishness, but He can change our hearts so that we are humble, that we worship Him, we see ourselves as we ought. In the same way, do we not just believe that God can withhold, keep people from same-sex activity, from acting out on their desires, but also that He can change their desires and that He will, um, He will, ultimately, in heaven. But the last few minutes that we have, I just want to remind ourselves and re- reframe all of this discussion um, in light of the gospel. So what are we calling people to 
whether they're a believer or unbeliever, have a biblical context, don't have a biblical context, what are we calling them to when we ask them to reject their sin and, and not engage in homosexual activity? It's call it sin. What do they need to know? Um, and we need to remind them, and we need, we need them to know God, we need them to know Christ. Our underlying assumption is that there is a God who has created everything and that he has given us the law and the way that he created things is good. If you don't have that underlying assumption, it doesn't totally make sense to withhold people and to tell people not to engage in homosexual activity because there is no moral law. What's the standard? Well, God is our standard, and we want them to see that there is someone who has created them and that they are accountable to him. Because of that, they've, they've fallen short. Um, they are sinners, not just in their sexuality, but in every aspect of their life. There's multiple ways in which they, they need to be redeemed. They need to be rescued. And they, they, they will be judged apart from, from any sort of rescue, apart from any sort of holiness. But God has sent a Savior for them who died, not just to cover up their sin and not just to um, you know, take the punishment that their, their homosexual activity and anything else deserves, but also he died to cleanse them, to make them holy, and one day he will present them holy and blameless before himself at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we're not just denying people. It's not, and I think it's even maybe not helpful to frame this as deny yourself. It's not just deny yourself and take up your cross, though there is that. It's deny yourself, take up your cross, and find life. In Christ, there is abundant life. And so I think we are, it would be helpful to not just emphasize the cost and not just emphasize what we are calling people from, but what we are calling them to and the reward that is coming and that will, we will experience um, in the next life and in some aspects to this life as well. So don't, don't forget the, the hope of the gospel. This is incredibly hard discussion, and it's probably only going to get harder um, as we engage with people, as we engage with family members, strangers on this topic. It's only going to get harder. I just want to encourage you not to lose heart because we are not, uh, we, we have something better to offer. Um, we're inviting them into the entire gospel story to be rescued and redeemed. Freedom is better than bondage. We all have experienced, we all know the curse of bondage to sin. And when God has delivered us into freedom and we, we know that we are truly free of mm. what formerly held us captive as a slave, there's nothing that compares uh, as we are breathing entities mm. to that sense of liberty, true liberty, where we, we are no longer uh, held captive by our whims and our inclinations and our passions. Um, and so that is the hope that is available to all of us mm. in, in that, in, in this topic and in every other. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Any other final thoughts, questions? Yeah. It seems like in the thick of the one, it's, it's so strong where people get their identity from their sexuality. You don't see that in other sins or whatever, um, but this particular one, it seems like people just really grasp onto that. That's who I am. You know? It makes it difficult. There's a, quite a bit of 
cultural baggage that you have to unpack and things you have to entangle because like, how, like we, we got to this point as a, as a nation, as a culture where that's actually, that you didn't, wasn't always that way. Uh, we didn't always view our sexuality, our internal realities as our ultimate identity. Um, so it makes it difficult um, trying to sort through that. But at the same, t- in some ways, also, it's it's not as complex as it could be because the, the offer is still, even if you want to say that is your identity, we're still offering you a different identity, and you need to forsake that and cling to Christ as your identity. Um, and it's not based off of your sexuality; it's based off of Him and, and who He is and what He has done for you and what He calls you to. But still hard; it's still very hard. The thing that keeps going around my mind is I find it interesting. I cannot think of another sin where there is a pressure um, to call it not a sin. I mean, if somebody's a thief, they may, you know, like, they're they're not trying to get you to say, well, this is right to be a thief. And I think of, you know, my, um, some relatives of ours who are choosing to to live together um, in a heterosexual, you know, they, she did get her priest to say that was okay, mm. you know, with, with Catholic Church or whatever, she got that too. But they're not, you know, we, we love them, mm. and we interact with them, but it's, they're not asking us to say that what they're doing is okay, they're just choosing to do that. They're not, like, trying to make us affirm that as why. Mm. And then this is the only thing I can think of where people sin and they're like, insist that everybody else says it's okay. Mm. Other people might choose a life of, you know, having affairs or cohabitating right. or, you know, have problems other sin. But this is the only thing. And I, I guess what keeps coming back in my mind is how intensely Satan wants to twist what God made mm. and what it represents that that it's that important to Satan to, to twist him with that much vigor and venom into twisting our sexuality because of how intrinsic it is to how God made us and mm. how it represents what Christ the reflection of Christ in the church and how how intrinsically important it really is mm. and how important yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, there is a unique aspect to homosexuality in that there's a whole group of people that want to have parades and push it across uh, the culture, right? So that's certainly unique to homosexuality, and that's part of why it's it's a um, it's a battleground for hmm. church. Um, but I was thinking, I was like, I was like, yeah, what are other sins that people want to say are okay? And I started thinking, I was like, well, transgenderism is in the same boat. Um, but so is sex outside of marriage, like heterosexual sex. They want to say that's okay. They want to say abortion is okay. Like it's okay to kill your <coughs> child in the womb. I mean, like there's a number of, and many of them are connected directly to our sexuality and reproduction and so forth. And so like... I think like the basic premise of what you're saying stands in, in the sense that Satan is hammering this hard. Um, but I just think that like uh, 
we've lost a ton of ground, a ton of ground in terms of what is right and what is wrong. This is just, the, the homosexuality and transgenderism is like in the fore, but if we rewind the clock, I didn't live through the 60s, but I imagine it was <laughs> free love and all that is pushing the idea of it's okay to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, as much as you want. Mm. That's attacking monogamy and marriage, right? So like, they're, like we're, we're far down the track in a progression and it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bad, we're in a bad way. So it's just, um, but that doesn't deny the uniqueness of, there is a, uh, a militant branch, I guess, maybe. Mm. This is a group that you belong to. And part of it is this connected to what Keith was saying. If you guys want, there's a book you have to slog through, but if you want a decent um, <laughs> sort of explanation of the last 300 years and how we got to where we are, you can read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's a beefy, weighty book, but it's it's helpful for understanding uh, mm. the culture. And I will say that all of us in this room, even as Christians, uh, we've been steeped in the tea. Amen. So we ourselves tend to be psychologically driven, emotion emotionally driven. Amen because of the tea that we're steeped in. We cannot exempt ourselves from the last 300 years and say that we exist outside of this culture. Mm -hmm. Many of the things that we struggle with as a culture, we struggle with ourselves, even as Christians. Amen. So it's like, it's good to help see like, oh, I'm also driven uh, by my emotion, etc., etc. Um, we can see it. You can see it. Once you see it, then you can see it in many places, not just with homosexuality or transgenderism. Um, maybe that's the most obvious, but there are other ways it manifests itself. Uh, and we've just become... The media that's been used also has uh, caused us to become desensitized to so many things. So go back to the 20s and see how the emergence of film and broadcast media and so forth began to normalize and glorify uh, extramarital behavior and so forth. And we can see how it has accelerated so that we're on that Roman's path. 